Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Helicopter Podcast, episode number 10, double digits. Uh, I made it. We made it. That's uh, awesome. I remember when I was turning 9 to 10, that was like a huge deal. So I'm going to celebrate my 10th podcast like I celebrated my 10th birthday. Uh, and I couldn't be more excited to have Dan Duderman join us on the Helicopter Podcast today. Dan, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Halsey. Man, I got to imagine, uh, with a last name like Duderman, like, did you actually ever get called Dan or Daniel growing up, or was no, it just Duderman? pretty much Duderman. Come here. Duderman. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome. It's a sweet last name, actually. And, like, I don't know, just, it rolls off the tongue easy. It's just, yeah, it's good. Yeah, the variations are impressive. So, yeah. I, I, I'm sure. Uh, well, my name is Halsey Scheider, and I get all the solicitors uh, all the time really botched that i get like hazley shitter i think i can say that uh because i'm referring to my last name and it's like no it's definitely shiter so uh <laughs> people people botch it but uh, dan welcome to the helicopter podcast i'm so excited to have you on you have a tremendous uh resume uh both in the military and civilian uh world of helicopters so let's just jump right into it what uh what is that resume all about what brings you on the helicopter podcast yeah so um i'm from what it sounds like, I'm one of your first military type people, um, as retired military. Uh, so basically, um, you know, I got commissioned out of a uh, naval ROTC in uh, University of Florida, and I went to Pensacola um, as a go Na- Gators. Yeah, go Gators. Um, so I finished up Pensacola as a helicopter pilot in December of '93. Uh, I got my orders to uh, the West Coast, the way West Coast, Guam. Um, so after about a nine-month stint, learned to fly the H-46. Um, I went out to Guam for three years, uh, followed a tour at uh, Flight Instructor back at Pensacola, uh, which was an amazingly rewarding experience. Um, and then I, I kind of said, all right, Navy, you know, you're not offering me a lot of flying jobs for the next couple of years. So I jumped ship and went to the Coast Guard, um, where I had a very diverse and fun career there. So I flew, uh, my first tour was out of Savannah. Uh, flying the uh, Dolphin, uh, and then uh, followed on by uh, Hit Run during the rental helicopter years, as we call it, flying the Augusta 109, um, and then uh, followed that with uh, another search and rescue tour out of Miami, uh, where I retired in 2011, um, and at, during those last couple years, I had kind of made the connection I would want to go into business for myself, um, so I started a company. Um, and that company has been carrying me for quite some time. Um, so, uh, did some flying right after I got out, um, EC-135, uh, VIP world, um, doing yacht operations. And then, uh, I took a break a little while to have some kids. Um, not me, but the wife, right? 
Um, and then, <laughs> You're part of it. Yeah, I'm part of it, but I'm <laughs> glad I'm not part of it, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, and then uh, I got back into flying recently as uh, my wife is also a uh, helicopter pilot, Coast Guard. She has uh, a words of DC that brought us to this area, and I have been flying a uh, Bell 429 for a VIP operation for a little while, but uh, that has now vaporized as the owner is selling the bird. So, um, yeah, um, stayed in this aviation business for almost 30 years now. Uh, so it's, wow. it's a good time, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, yeah, you are our first uh, true military aviator. We've had uh, previous military guys and gals, actually, that did military, and then they use a GI benefit to train civilian and I think with it, you're one of the more experienced guys. I think you and Sean, uh, for now, can take the uh, the cake for our, our most experienced guests. So we feel super lucky to have you on. I can't wait to talk more about the squadron. Really cool. Um, amazing that you've been doing business for so long. I've you know been in business now for about four years, and I applaud anyone that can can do it because it is not easy. So I want to touch on that. Um, just for our viewers out there that might be maybe unfamiliar with some of the airframes that you just mentioned, like the H-46 specifically in the in the Navy, what is that aircraft and what's the primary mission of that? Right. I think for any of these conversations, it would be important to kind of make that leap. Um, the H-46 was a tandem rotor aircraft. They still fly them doing logging up there uh, in the Northwest. So um, the VTOLs, I think you call them. Um, I don't remember the designation. The Navy has put most of them on sticks, so they don't fly them anymore. Um, and sure. Uh, but the, the logging community still uses them. They're just a tremendous platform. The vertical replenishment uh, was the meat and potatoes of that world. Um, and then the uh, Gusta 109, you'll see that in the, in the VIP world um, as well. Of course. Um, the way we flew that thing, unfortunately for it, it was treated like a rental helicopter. So we, we really abused them uh, in a very interesting <laughs> profile. Um, so, uh, in fact, I think most of them are still, you know, sitting in a hangar somewhere and nobody wants to buy yeah, them. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so... Uh, the Dolphin, um, also, you know, that's uh, AS-365 in the, in the commercial sector, so that's still flown, N3s. Um, but the Coast Guard variants are, are the Coast Guard variants. They, they do their own maintenance tool, they overhaul themselves, and they have unique mission systems on them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so as far as the other aircrafts, you know, I've, I've played in a lot of different airframes and tinkered in a lot of different ones, but all would have civilian titles to them. But the H-46... Sure. Yeah, that one might be a little outdated because that was. Yeah, I was kind. Of, I, I even had to kind of scratch my head on it a little bit. Um, and of course, yeah, of course. Now you were in the Bell Four Two Nine. I've seen that aircraft actually. I got a spec sheet on that that exact helicopter. <laughs> yeah. That interior is yeah. that interior is more than uh, like my house times ten. I think so. That's a beautiful. Yeah beautiful helicopter and we've actually had a lot of 429 drivers on already and we've kind of talked about some of the some of the great things about the the 429 but also some of the you know achilles heel with some of the uh gross weight issues and things like that sure. with the uh faa but one thing i'm really curious to talk to you about it because this is a hot topic i have a couple friends that were uh prior military aviators and transitioned into the civilian sector and my friends specifically uh did very well they they, they picked up EMS jobs. They kind of just fit right into the system. But they even told me like, hey, it's not the case for everyone. You know, there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes going from military to civilian. And sometimes it's to a point where it could actually really hinder someone from successfully transitioning from that. 
What is what? What was that like for your experience? So I would say I was a you know military mutt first of all, um, serving in two services. I had the opportunity to adapt to a new culture during you know the middle of my first you know period of, of ten years um, by jumping into the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard is very different from the Navy, even though they all train at the same flight school. Culturally, they're different from the Marines and they're different from the Army and the Air Force. So. Um, I think it, for anybody that comes out of the military, it's the degree of, of influence those organizations have had on you. Um, so if you do, like for me, when I graduated flight school, 93, I then began a seven-year commitment. So the Navy had me for up to 10 years before I was allowed to say, see ya. Um, very similar in, in a lot of services. So if somebody comes into a service and, say, does five to seven years, and then they leave. I'd say their transition period is going to be a little bit easier because they won't be as heavily influenced by that organization. You know, walking like a duck and talking like a duck, that kind of thing. Um, for those that do 20 years, like I did, um, as a pure service, one service, okay, they have spent now 20 years negotiating a professional pipeline to achieve a rank and a position. And now all of a sudden they're like, all right, it's time to punch out. I've done my 20. Or they're asking me to leave, which is another thing that happens in the military. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, so the military is set up to have so many commissioned officers and so many enlisted personnel. It's a set force. So the higher up you get, you're competing for those higher ranks. And if you don't get promoted after so many times, they finally saying, get the message, time to leave. <laughs> there, there's there the door. There's the door. So, um, and, and for those people, they often don't have a plan. Even after 20 years of negotiating, you know, a pipeline, now all of a sudden they don't have a plan. Um, and I see that a lot. I've seen that with people who have done more time, 20, 25 years, um, that amazingly they get to the very end and they're like, uh, what am I going to do now? And that's, that's where a lot of difficulties come in. So for those that are doing the seven to 10 year range as a helicopter pilot, you're in a great position to come out. You've got some great experience, uh, but you're still going to be fresh and, and open-minded enough, hopefully, to, to kind of jump in and try not to be ace of the base wherever you go, but, you know, at least trying to capitalize on that experience um, and realize you've got a lot to learn. Um, it's, you know, flying with uh, Sean Moretz, for example. Um, he and I have been flying together for a couple of years now, um, and I'm constantly, you know, impressed with his level of experience in certain areas, which I just had no idea about. Um, you know, whether it's, it's firefighting, whether it's offshore oil, just how those industries work, they all have their quirks. Um, and, uh, and I'll tell you from experience flying with him coming up straight civilian, right? He and I have uh, done IFR, IMC operations in the 429 down to men's, um, and some pretty gnarly stuff. And it's, it's very comfortable, even though we came from very diverse backgrounds. Um, so, but for those that are getting out, I'd say, you know, don't wait to the last minute to think about what you're going to do next. But if you're going to get in the helicopter uh, pilot world, nowadays there are so many wonderful programs for people within the Department of Defense or Department of Homeland Security uh, to take those programs, use that education, and find your path forward in the industry. But just go into it with really open eyes and, and not try and carry your rank, your experience. The There I Was stories, you know, all the things that you can talk about at the Officers Club or wherever you may be, that's just not going to be a reson resonating thing and, and you new audience, if you will. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Uh, you know, I think that one takeaway that I've always kind of also thought of when uh, talking with my buddy Jackie and my other buddy Chris, who integrated from military to civilian, is that it's it is a very different mission profile, right? You you as a pilot in the military is taught to fly kind of a different way than say someone like myself taught in an R twenty two and R forty four. You know, the mission profiles are very different, right? You you guys are training to go in war zones and, you know, come down quick and leave fast and, you know, I'm trained to come in really slow and controlled and, you know, there's just different profiles and different mentalities that it's just I think is a harder uh, part to it. And I know that my buddy Jackie and Chris specifically, they had to have an open mind to being able to transition a little bit from the, you know, from this mindset of, you know, flying tactically in the military to being a civilian pilot. And, you know, it is kind of funny though. I will say like, uh, this, this happened to me all the time when I was flying Grand Canyon tours, like, uh, people, passengers be like, Oh man, I bet you served in the military. And I'd be like, no, didn't. And like this look of disappointment over their face of like, oh God, this guy's going to kill me. Like, and in fact, like none of the guys at Maverick, obviously, you know, just that's yeah. a very entry level civilian job sure. for the most part. So it was just like really, uh, you know, that the military certainly has a high level standard training. And I think it's important to know that the civilian world does too, for the most part. It's just not as consistent. Um, so it's just, it's one of those things where you have to kind of adapt. And I think some guys do better at it than others. So when you first got out of the military, what was your first civilian job and what were some of the hurdles? So as I said, I, about three years before getting out, I had started this company. I uh, uh, was, was introduced to a, uh, a British uh, exchange pilot in our uh, air station who shortly thereafter introduced me to another British gentleman who was in Miami in the super yacht world. Um, and he actually had a need for somebody to uh, help him integrate an Augusta 109 onto the back of a yacht. And I was like, all right, well, I've been flying him off ships for a little while. I'll take a look at that. And I took one look at it and was like, no way. You know, I mean, it was like literally wiggling into some part of a superstructure on not a super yacht. Um, so that didn't really occur as a project, but we ended up, you know, end up pretty much drinking beers and having a good time and talking. And, uh, he ended up being my primary business partner, Mr. Freen. Uh, and, uh, James and I basically started that company and got into the consulting world of super yachts as the yachts were getting bigger and bigger and actually integrating proper helicopters, um, and so my first job actually uh, was just as I was getting done um, was to take uh, a very high net worth uh, individual's helicopter, which he had never seen. Um, we basically took this aircraft. I was the instructor, if you will, in the project and project management. Um, and the pilot that he had hired had never really deployed on ships. Competent pilot, but never deployed on ships. So the idea was I would help take the aircraft, take it down to the yacht, which had never seen a helicopter, integrate it to the yacht, then take it up and actually meet the yacht. And, and what that really looked like was transition course at the Eurocopter at the time, Airbus now, right? Um, so that was my first look at what does a transition course in a new aircraft coming off the line look like? And that was a pretty eye-opening, actually, because um, it was very different from the military style of things. Um, and then taking delivery of that aircraft. What are some of those 
I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I, I want to capitalize on that a little bit. What are some of those major differences that you that you saw in that training versus what maybe you would have saw in the military? Sure. I, the military style of training often is 10% flying, 90% learning how to crash. Okay. I mean, it's, it's literally they're, <laughs> they're constantly beating in your head. This is going to go wrong now. This is going to go wrong now. This is going to go wrong now. Um, and in very complex aircraft, there's a lot can go wrong. So there's a lot to remember, and, and there's a variety of things that they can hammer you on. Um, so check rides are abound. You're getting check rides for all kinds of stuff, from mission profiles to basic flight of the aircraft. Um, so going and, and seeing a, an EC-135 for the first time um, and going through the transition, you know, I realized that the manufacturer, their sole job is to simply say, here's the aircraft, here's how to turn it on, here's how to fly it. Don't ask me to teach you, you know, anything else. I might show you slope landings. I might show you how to do an instrument approach, like how to program it in this Garmin, but not my job. It's just not the thing that they're doing. Um, they're there to re- sure. they're responsible to say, here's the airframe, here's the flight manual. Don't read into it. This is what you're allowed to be taught. And off you went. And in case in point, here I am asking a lot of questions like, you know, hey, can I put a high point tie down on this thing on the boat? And they're looking at me like, a what? You know, um, so... And that being, how do I secure this this thing to the, the ship? And they're like, well, we don't do that um, here. So taking that <laughs> aircraft and then flying it from Texas down to Fort Lauderdale and taking it on the back of the boat the first time, you know, Mr. Freen is on one side training the crew and I'm training the pilot. We make the two marry up. Okay, we got them operationally savvy. Now we're going to take them from Fort Lauderdale. We're going to fly that aircraft up to Alaska. Okay. So we had probably about 100 hours on this aircraft before we ever went operational with it. And then saying, all right, we're going to go into 100 hour. And I'm like, what's 100 hour? You know, and, and <laughs> because pilots aren't allowed to touch the machine in the military. That's really funny. You yeah, know? of course. So there's all these nuances yeah. that we kind of like went along. And we had enough mentorship, fortunately, with real civilian pilots. They'd be like, yeah, you got to do this. And here's how you change the oil. <laughs> you know, um, yeah commonplace in your world right not not in the military pilots are like you, know, you don't touch that that's the maintenance guy Mm-mm. so of course uh, so yeah there's there's that um that was that was again i understood it but from the military style it is you know every system in and out you're analyzing how much of that system can fail and if you can actually continue with the mission because military doesn't make money right it spends money the government spends money if, yeah so the very different mental model of like how you're training and, and thinking in terms of if I make a decision, this isn't going to impact the company, right? But in your world sure. or the civilian world, uh, money is an important thing, right? So um, your decision and it's how you do It's all about the business, bottom line. Yeah, serious bottom line. And that's, but you know, there's a big delta there in the sense of uh, you're authorized, if you will, for certain types of mission profiles to go out and bend metal and bend people. That's acceptable in aspects of the military flying. It's not really acceptable in the civilian world, right? At all, um, and usually not. Usually, uh, not, usually no. not on the job description of things no. that they want you to do. You know, and maybe <laughs> you know, but maybe you do have organizations out there like that are getting into commercial SAR. You know, that's a new thing. Commercial search and rescue is not. I mean, our company's done audits of organizations that are doing that very professionally. But even then, there is no intent for them to go out and, and get hurt and do what they're doing. But they understand that's a risk. So 
again, the military mindset's a little different. We're not profit-driven by nature. We don't even think about the bottom line. Um, and chances are you crash one and you did not intend to crash one, then, and you survive, you're going to be back in one doing the job, not, you know, again. So. <laughs> Next week. Get back, get back in, Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Post-investigation, get back to job. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. So this is uh, this is kind of interesting. I uh, I had I kind of forgot about this whole cool aspect of you and your business and this yacht thing. Uh, I think I'm just fascinated by yachts because I mean they're like unobtainable and they're just crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so it seems like a really bizarre world to be in, but it also seems like when you're working with a very high net worth individual that maybe they might not understand or be open to some of the uh, feedback or the setup of how to do things safely. Has that been a uh, kind of a hurdle for you uh, when you're working around yachts and yacht operators and owners specifically? Are they pretty open? You know, normally the people that are at that level, they're pretty smart people. Um, and, you know, unless they're like lottery winners, which I've not encountered. So the clients that I've had in the past, um, you know, do appreciate how dangerous it can be. And they do appreciate the ability to set things up so that you're not setting it up for military style stuff. In fact, it should be just the opposite. The mission is fishing, right? So if you're thinking of, do I have to set a helicopter up, you know, it's brand new, maybe an H-145 or an H-160 or an F-76, whatever. Um, you know, big machines going to big boats. Um, they should be going out when it's absolutely beautiful. It should be just like landing on a helicopter pad, right? Nothing dramatic. Whereas the military style, you're thinking, all right, I got a 15-foot sea and I got 40 knots of wind and I got to get there. That's where the gas is and that's the only place to land. They should never be in that profile. So, But they do realize from accidents that have happened, you know, the, the most, some of the most dangerous parts of the boat are the boat itself, you know, and we'll say you can have a cushion fly up and find the rotor system. Yeah, it's over quick. It's, yeah, I mean, I saw that there was that video recently uh, uh, where it was like a, a an awning or something yep. came into the tail rotor, and I mean, yeah, that's that's a, that's that's a bad day. Probably <laughs> the most common thing is is foreign object damage um, things, and people just not doing a checklist. A lot of people don't realize, like yacht crews, for example, those people really, really work hard. I mean, it it, it may look very, very sexy, but and it is, but the sexy parts for the clients. The people that make that happen, interior staff and the deck crews, they work very hard. Um, and so they're often very fatigued, and it's easy for them to make mistakes. Um, and it's going to be a pretty dramatic end to the paycheck if it happens. Um, so, you know, just because people are made a lot of money definitely doesn't make them immune to, you know, the things that are going to get them in helicopter aviation. Um, but a lot of pilots, particularly if you're thinking about getting in that world, you know, you've got to remember your job is the only regulation out there is to make sure that that helicopter landing area on that boat is a safe place. Well, what defines that? There isn't a regulation. And who's operating it? You know, you've got a bunch of zombies down there that are really working their tails off, but they can forget stuff. And you can ask anybody who's had that close call, it's typically something come flying at you like, oh, there's last night's dinner tray, you know, and is that a champagne yeah. glass? You know, um, what was that that just went through the rotor system that looked shiny? <laughs> you know, so. Well, not to mention, too, we had one of uh, the... The podcast that I posted today, this guy with Eric Thresher, and he had this Thresher rule that he had kind of come up with himself, and it was like, just a noisy helicopter in itself can cause a safety concern, you know, uh, not just for 
people around it, but even pilots. Like once those rotors are going, there's a lot happening. And even I would imagine the best trained yacht crew, people that aren't necessarily aviation specific, even on the best conditions, those rotors start turning. There's wind batting around when you're pulling pitch. There's a lot of noise. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that might just kind of, uh, cause you know a lapse of judgment or whatnot so i i don't know i, I feel like the whole yacht thing does kind of scare me a little bit or it, or it can scare i mean i've told a lot of uh, a lot of clients like you know doing night operations off of boats um you know i have one particular instance where it was an interesting thing to see with a night vision goggles sitting on the back of a coast guard cutter and i saw this piece of paper just kind of flying up from the bridge right it's flying down towards it and i just see this piece of paper and i'm like okay well it's no big deal it's paper and that paper got into the rotor system and it like caught the blade just right so it didn't like get shredded. And it made this audible machine gun sound just whistle. Oh. It was crazy. <laughs> and you watch about 10 people do the funky chicken on the deck, man. They were just like running everywhere because they couldn't see it. I'm like over the radio going, it's paper, it's paper, it's okay, you know. But it's paper. <laughs> somebody was about to jump over the deck because this is a helicopter and that's not a normal sound that just came from that noisy machine. And they're all running for the hills. And I would have too, you know, if I'd been out there and heard that sound because I had double hearing protection and it still was loud. Uh, one eight yeah, by ten. So funny. <laughs> yeah. That hey, that was that was a good uh, machine gun uh, impression, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Impressive. I, I, got a, uh, I got a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was really good. Well, that's uh, yeah. I mean, the whole yacht thing. It it it's like um, it looks really sexy and fun. But I hear it's actually really not like the greatest helicopter gig. You know, it depends a lot on the owners. Um, some owners, like the one I went with for 30 days in Southeast Alaska, Southeast Alaska um, in the summertime, it was my first time up there. It was magical. It was beautiful. Um, and he treated that helicopter like an F-150 truck. He wanted to go out and see stuff. I mean, just every day it was something for he and his guests. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a total gas for us. Um, but most of the time it's, you know point A to point B, it's 99% planning, 1% flying, death by point two, death by point three. Um, and it's, it's labor intensive in terms of like permitting or, you know, cause they go to crazy places. Um, and then it's always very last minute. A lot of times no plan. So, um, it depends on the relationship I think they have, but it's, it's a tough world for people to be in if they don't quite get, there's a very, um, spontaneous nature to it often. Um, and it can be very frustrating. And then at the end of the day, as I said to myself after, you know, the 20 years of, of maritime flying, there I was in a freaking dry suit on the back of a yacht, and I'm looking at water going, I'm on a boat again. Damn. You know, how, how did I do that? Because, you know. Yeah, here I am. <laughs> here I am. It's like you, Whale. It can't escape you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, that would be uh... – I, I don't know. I always thought, and that's another thing for me, it's like, I'm just not a big water guy. I don't love the idea of being over the ocean. I don't think I would make the best Coast Guard pilot, even though I feel like the Coast Guard is like, I don't know, super awesome in regards to their mission profile and the things that they do, at least what I know of the Coast Guard. But it's, um, man, I get, I, I kind I don't know. I feel like, you know, whether I'm flying offshore or flying the yacht, man, the water thing would scare me. You know, get an engine failure, go in the water. Yeah, it's a, it's, a great swimmer. It's a whole other thing when, you know, you land in the water and you're part of the food chain now. So, um, you that's know, true. That's, that's one of those things to consider. But, you know, that's another aspect of how uh, we as a, as a company prepare those yacht pilots, if you will, as well as the ship's captains, how to deal with a, a mishap at sea. Um, and, you know, where the guy might show up in a, in a polo shirt 
and he's wearing his Bose headset, I come walking in, I've got a vest with an EPER, I got a helmet, um, because, you know, I'm trying to tell him, look, you go in the water and survive, this is the only part that's above the water. So, you know, your helmet has now got Velcro for your EPER, the strobe light, and you got a handheld maritime radio to call boat people saying, get me out of here now. Um, those are all things that after many years of looking for people in the water, you know, it's a way to pass on like, hey, you're a good pilot maybe? Cool. Ditch the aircraft in a smart way. You get out. Now what? And you could be yeah, a, what are you going to do? You can be a mile away or half a mile away from a boat and they still won't see you. It's, of course, it's yeah. It's a difficult, difficult thing to see unless you are a big marker buoy all of a sudden. So uh, it's something to consider. It's interesting. It's just being ready. I mean, we've talked about this before in the podcast before. It's just having a, a, a readiness to you. And I think sometimes people think the readiness is like, oh, I'm ready. Like, I know I'm going to land there when the engine goes out or I'm going to do this if this happens. But also readiness includes like, hey, packing. Like if I – with Air Medical, I had like a little go bag. Like yeah. it had – you know, food and extra water, uh, and just some essentials. Like, Hey, if I'm in the middle of nowhere, South Texas on a hot day, what would I like to have if I have to land the helicopter, not even crash the helicopter? What if I have to do a, uh, you know, I got a chip light and I, you know, safely land without an incident, but here I am yeah. in no cell service at 105 degrees and you know, the middle of nowhere, Texas. So oh. I think it's, uh, it's a good point that you bring up about readiness, right? Like, you know, don't just think that readiness is about, you know, where you're going to land in auto rotation or, or things like that. It's about how can you really prepare for it? I've seen it go a little intense on the other side. I got, I got a buddy of mine that flies the news and, and when he, when he goes out over the town and, He's, he's very ready to go, man. He has the full survival pack and, and whatnot. I'm like, man, we never leave the city. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. This is extra weight, but yeah, hey, it's, you know, some people. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great discussion point for whatever industry of helicopter pilots are playing in. There's such a, you know, a diverse, uh, realm, right? Um, but the thing that distinguishes helicopters, I think, between aircraft, fly, uh, uh, airplanes is that by nature, Helicopters are always much closer to the threats. You're always up most, you know, up close and personal to things, um, whether it be a yacht or you know, power line. Um, you know, it's you're pretty close to stuff, and it can go south pretty quick. Um, and at least in the maritime piece, um, I think there's a there's a fair balance of saying that environment can present you with all kinds of different changes. And you know, if you're not a great swimmer, well, you should be wearing a vest. Um, but also, you know, the worlds collide too in terms of the high net worth police they want to always look really cool. They want to be in their, you know, designer clothes. It's like, that's cool. But if you're going to be out there doing this and somebody's told you, you really should probably wear some of this stuff. Um, they're like, Oh, well, it might scare the people. It might be, you know, a bit over the top. And it's like, okay, first off, you know, spend the money on yourself, you know, buy your own helmet, do this. And then don't ask permission. You know, it'd be like, I'm wearing this to protect you. Okay, because if I survive, then I can get you guys out. Or they're going to find me with all of you clinging on to me. Um, and I've, I've even had one pilot uh, who was like, it never happened. I'm like, dude, if you make it look cool, I'll bet they'll do it. And sure enough, man, I came back to that boat like six months later. And the owner came out, and they've got this little vest, and they slick it on him. He puts on his Ray-Bans. And, his, and I was <laughs> like, yeah, man, you made it look cool. So he's on it. And But at the end of the day, it's 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 an amazing thing now if you can get those people who have achieved so much in life, and there's a lot of people also that are on their payroll, um, that's a measure of protection. That's professionalism. You get them on board with the concept 
they'll do it. Everybody else will do it. And you, know, you put kids in the back of those things and you're going off. You go splash, got to give them a chance, you know, and, and everybody thinks, yeah. okay, well, you know, they've got life vests in their seat. It's like, yeah, go ahead and put that on while you're doing auto rotation over your seatbelt, which you're going to have to release. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a whole good, trickle effect. Yeah, good luck. Um, so that's been the value yeah, no, added. It's, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's amazing. Well, I want, I want to talk about safety with you. I know that you're very much in tune with safety and helicopter safety, but I think before we get into it, I think we should understand a little bit more about your business, the squadron. It seems to be kind of a prevalent time to talk about that. I know that like any great business, it was, uh, it came to fruition over beers. So that's yeah. probably why you've been so successful. <laughs> so beyond the, the beers, what did you all talk about that night and what has it turned into? Uh, did you say 2011 is 2000, when you were having those beers? 2008. Um, and so 2008. We, we incorporated in 2008. Yeah. So I was about three years before getting out. Um, oh, crazy. And, okay. And okay. So wow. One of my goals at that time was with this entrepreneurial kind of concept was I had to make my last two years in the military as painful as possible. Like I really had to have the itch to get out. I had to really be driven to get out because I had other things waiting for me. So I leveraged that sure. time to do that. Um, and, and that was just a fortunate place to be for, for that. And I had, you know, a good business partner who was clear out. So, uh, he was a jungly pilot, uh, in, in the Royal Marines. And, and so he understood a little bit about what I was going through and, um, it was good. Um, but what we talked about in particular that night was we realized that, you know, what, what an amazing thing that after 20 years and all the education, all the experience, um, that we had, um, it's often lost once you leave the military. Um, you know, it's, it's lost in the respect of either you take a job, let's say today, you, you pop out and become an Amazon program manager. You know, all that mentorship and all that stuff that you can pass on is just vaporized. So one of our thoughts was, is that wouldn't it be nice if we could just create a consortium of subject matter experts in particular fields? You know, what would you be bulletproof at, in other words? Um, and, and basically put those people into teams and be able to go and be third-party uh, consultants, and but not with the idea of going in and taking over and becoming part of their you know everyday operations. It's more like go in, show them how to do stuff, and get out. Like if you do your job really well as a consultant, unfortunately, they're not going to call you back, right? They're on their way. Um, and with so many organizations in the helicopter world migrating towards more military-like operations, you know, this is 2011. So, you know, night vision goggles weren't that prevalent then. You know, unless you had big corporations, big money. Um, flying off of boats, you know, super yachts, wasn't that prevalent. People did it, but those people also had some bad days. Um, so how do you, like, get in there and help them make good decisions and point them in the right directions based upon all the lessons learned and education that you had? Um, and also, we really just wanted to work with really good people. I mean, that was one of the aspects of it. And, and people that are involved with the squadron today are not all military. You know, I have career law enforcement. Um, they all typically do have a safety pedigree in some shape, some shape or form. Um, but even the maintenance side, you know, my current maintenance guy, um, you know, Kevin, he, he's massively experienced in the civilian world. And that's what I need. You know, if, if I got to turn him loose with a expert witness job, you know, he's the guy that's going to look at a crash and go, no, or yeah, you know, but his resume speaks to a high level. So, we try and put those types of consultants together, send them downrange, and especially with COVID now, you can do so much with Zoom. Um, that's really helped us stay in business. Even the yacht training, just, we figured out how to do some of that virtual. 
until a time when we can get down there and actually work hand in hand with them again. So a big part of your guys's mission then is going in, acting as a third party, and specifically acting as a consultant in regards to uh, kind of what in specific is it? Is it a? Do you have a range of different syllabuses that you can cover? Yeah. So everything that we're doing is based along uh, the line of operational safety. So we use safety as a platform, um, principally because I think a lot of people don't quite get safety in the sense of they don't understand really it's a process. You know, they think okay, if, if I do certain things, I'm not going to have a crash, or I'm not going to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, safety is, is something that's layered over an operation. Um, it's your SOPs, it's your doctrine, it's your, uh, your procedures and your RFM, you know, it's all these things. So what, if, if an organization is going to do something new, um, then we come in and we say, all right, here's the management of change of that. Here's what's going to be different in your world if you take on something like goggles. As simple as saying, I'm going to start doing night vision goggles in this place today. What's going to change? Well, you're going to see a lot of changes. Um, but you also have to adapt culturally towards those changes. And here's traditionally some of the ways that's bit this military world, you know, and providing those lessons learned and mentorship. Um, and companies out there, that, for example, sell night vision goggles would leverage us to go in as a third party and manage that change, that cultural change. And they were out and then they're being taught goggles and they go about doing their missions. Um, so it's, it's along those lines. We use safety and all the different aspects of safety, the four pillars and SMS, risk management, will teach people how to do a safety program itself from an operational perspective, meaning we'll apply all our military experience to say, we did really high risk stuff repeatedly. And how do we do that? Because we had a robust safety program or risk management program. We were trained with crew resource management. We were trained with operational stuff it's not rocket science it's just they're often not ever afforded the opportunity to be exposed to that because it costs money which the military doesn't worry about has endless endless amounts of it's got its budget and you've got to spend it all if you don't you don't get as much next year so they spend it all right sure (laughs) yeah Yeah, so it's a a different mentality well i want to kind of keep on that subject uh we are going to take a quick break for a quick sponsor call and then we'll uh, tie right back into that Okay. okay super this podcast is brought to you by Celicopter. Tired of listings that go nowhere? Exhausted by tire kickers who waste your time? Don't sell your helicopter alone. Celicopter handles the entire process from start to finish. So, if your helicopter is sat too long, waiting for a buyer, contact the team at Celicopter today for your complimentary market valuation. Call 1 855 Celicopter. 1 855 735 5226. Or Email sales at sellacopter.com. Sellacopter. List it. Sell it. Done. All right. We are back from that quick break. Uh, thanks for your patience there, Dan. Um, so that was an interesting thing that we were talking about before the break is, um, you know, the military, so to speak, has an infinite budget. And in fact, you know, I've even heard stories of guys like going out and buying like super, super fancy coffee machines for their base overseas because like they had to spend the money. Like here's a $30,000 coffee machine, you know, just to get the budget. I don't know if it's true or not. There's there's similar stories. I'm sure there are. Um, You know, I fortunately don't have my name on any of those shits. So I'm good. Good. Yeah. You can stay clear. So with that though, I mean, I guess with being in, the civilian world, bottom line is a big deal and budget's important for profit businesses. Yeah. I get it, right? You have to make money. 
And I think that there was a really big problem in the helicopter world for a very long time, civilian-wise, in which people didn't want to invest in safety. They didn't understand the investment in safety, and they wouldn't spend the money. And companies got terrible reputations. A lot of people died. A lot of people died for probably no reason or reasons that could have been avoided. In your anecdotal experience, how has it been working with private for-profit companies and trying to convince them that investing in safety is like one of the best investments they can make as an operator? Sure. There's two avenues to that. Either one, they've already had the bad day. They've had the watershed event and they are coming sure. to terms with the fact that they did not have any kind of safety culture or program. Um, and if they had, there is a very high probability they would have not had that bad day. Um, the other types are people that their their owners, CEOs, uh, either director of ops, they get it and they take on the reins of a company and they realize there's nothing there and they realize they're, they're very exposed. Um, because those people and the people that had a watershed event um, typically come to learn that the cost of a, a crash is astronomical compared to the cost of a fairly simple process. Um, it may look scary, you know, in terms of like, they don't know anything about it, but um, most of the time, once you kind of get rolling for a couple days with them um, and then you step away, it's as long as the, the stuff that's being presented isn't death by PowerPoint, you know, there's interaction and they're given the opportunity to have some buy-in to the process and actually make things themselves tailored to their organizations. Those people tend to, those groups of people tend to have more buy-in to safety as a whole. Um, and, and I, you know, I'll give you a, a, an example of where we'll take a law enforcement unit, um, which are very commonly run by senior policemen that are not pilots. Um, they're there as the managers and run the program. Um, but they have a hard time sometimes with aviation safety and then, you know, they have a bad day. Or they've seen another department that they know people in have a bad day. Uh, and then you come in and do presentations and they're like, you know, look, all this safety stuff, we got to go. We, we got to get out there and, and, you know, catch the bad guys. We got to do this. And it's like, all right, well, if you go and do that and you end up in a smoking hole, not only did you have the loss of an asset and people, but now the mission has also suffered. And the bad guy's still loose or the kid's still missing. And you also have, you know, dead cops um, or a bent up aircraft, you know, so... How is that going to impact your image, your ability to operate in the future, and subsequent missions? And our ability, I think, coming from the military realm is that we get the operational safety side because of the high-risk nature and doing it repeatedly that we're able to convey a sense of, I hear what you're doing, so let's talk about what you do, and then let's fold safety over top of that. Let me show you what that looks like. And when you show them that, then their eyeballs kind of go, oh, all right, light bulb comes on. And the fact that we're not there to take their jobs, and we're not there to make them look bad. Um, but typically when we go to do a safety consultation, there's typically a one-hour sit-down with the boss. And it's a closed-door session, and we go, look, sure. you can waste your money, you can pay us and give us slip service and not do anything, but at the end of the day, if they don't believe you believe in the safety culture, you're sunk. So getting that buy-in from the boss, having the boss do certain things at the beginning, and then teaching the boss how this will actually increase profitability because you're not making the same errors over and over again. Um, and yeah, 
I mean, accidents are expensive too, and and not 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 to just put the dollar and cents behind it, but you know, it affects accidents can affect a lot of people in a very difficult way. Um, not even part of the right. You could you could have a police accident over a very busy city, and the people on the ground are then affected by that. Absolutely. You know, there's such a trickle down effect, and so I'm really glad to be uh, in the industry now. I feel like. You know, back in the day, you know, prior when I was, you know, I, I would say maybe early 90s, mid 90s, even early 2000s, it was a different industry and there was a different stance on safety. And I have been really lucky to work for operators that have taken a, for the most part, a pretty positive stance towards safety and, you know, their SMS program and yeah. establishing a just culture, which I think is like, to me... I'm very like I'm not super knowledgeable about SMS, you know that, but I feel like the the just culture and and things like that really allow you know uh, for a great overall safety culture. So um, you know it's really cool to see that there's you know uh, that people are open to it. You know I could see it. You you know you head into a an operation they've been doing things for one way for thirty years. Yeah. Might be kind of hard to get your point across. Is that is is it? Is it is there ever a big pushback or is it is it uh, people pretty open? It seems I, like I, I tend to start with something small instead of like pointing all towards like the smoking hole thing. Everybody wants to point towards a big crash and be like, all right, well, let's you back that up. Uh, let's say that you're out there uh, slinging power lines, okay, and you constantly are breaking one little gizmo. It's just as common as can be, right? And you don't ever document it. You just go get more gizmos. Well, if you have the ability to document the breaking of the gizmo and what that cost was. And over the course of time, you trend that and go, you know what, what are we doing? And you find out it's as simple as saying something differently, communicating something differently, and now the gizmo stopped breaking. Well, what's that dollar value you just saved with one little widget, right? So, but even then, it, it could be a simplest fix that stops a hazard that you know about from coming up and biting you. Um, and Operators in the helicopter world know those hazards, but mitigating them, they don't often have a voice. And so the SMS gives the ability to document not an error, but a failure in the system, and it's inefficiency. Sure. It's that inefficiency that bites you. And when you realize that, then you start seeing the dollar signs. You know, I mean, it's, it's a natural byproduct. Yeah, it is crazy to kind of look at it from that perspective, even like, hey, why does this part keep wearing out or something like that? I mean, you might find that uh, like most SMS reports, then it points to a systemic issue, not so much an isolated event. And I haven't even actually thought about it from like this, you know, non, you know, helicopter in the ground burning situation, like just, you know, a, a small component that keeps breaking or wearing or whatever. Uh it's a good way to put it, and so I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you said that. The, the flight data monitoring, for example, you know, having a little camera over there, the, the big brothers, everybody's saying, um, you know, there's there's a gentleman in Canada that runs a, a fairly large uh, helicopter operation, and and Paul is, uh, you know, very vocal about the use of the flight data monitoring. As the big brother is the kind of big brother that watches out of you, watches out for you on the playground, not, you know, the the evil one in, in the book. So. You know, and he tells us a great story of you know a pilot that had an incident coming off of uh, he was in a squirrel and he was coming off of a dolly and you know some crazy stuff happened and Paul's about to spend a ton of money on an engine and you know diagnostics this that and the other thing but he went to you know look at the little camera there and it turns out the pilot was texting doing the checklist and there was nothing wrong with the aircraft you know and that just saved him a massive bill 
and he is able to get rid of an asset that really wasn't doing him much good. So that's not safety being punitive. You've got to make that distinction, and that's, that's one of the benefits of the military world is that um, because it's not profit-driven, the safety investigation is very protected. The information in it is highly protected. Um, there are two investigations in a military crash. There's a safety one, and there's a judicial one. It's, uh, um, it's basically there to make sure you are in the line of duty. All right, So um, that is a separate board. And they literally are like, hey, did you go out there and do that on purpose? They try and dig up all the dirt. And, no. But you don't have to talk like, to that board like you do the safety board. The safety board, you can tell them everything and anything, no matter how it incriminates you, is protected because they want to know the root cause. Okay. Now, if you take that same mindset, the just culture stuff, and you jump into the civilian world, people are often too quick to pull the trigger on somebody and go, ah, pilot error, you did this wrong, you're fired. Instead of going, well, maybe, you know, the procedure you taught him or her wasn't that good. And you opened the window and they fell into the trap, but it's not on them. You trained them that way and your procedure was wrong. They don't want to do that. Whereas if you taught them that and they do want to do that and they find it, well, the next pilot that they hire, who's probably going to make the exact same error, you know, it's just this constant repeating. Yeah, it's going to be this systemic issue. Yeah. They're going to spend money on pilots. Yeah, no, it's it's there. There's so much more than just like the end crash, right? That obviously yeah. that's the goal is prevent you know sure. uh, have zero crashes. But on that same token, you know you can prevent pilots from being fired. You can prevent uh, things components from continued breaking. You know whatever it might be. Well, there's and, there's uh, not a lot of new mistakes, right? I mean, you hear that all the time. Uh, and, <laughs> that's and good. It, I like that. There's not. Unless you're coming up with a completely different thing, you know, like take EV tall for example, the air taxi's coming. That's, that's a new industry. These are new animals that are going to be flying around the air. They're going to have their growing pains. Um, I don't know what those are yet, but they're going to have them. Okay. Uh, but from our perspective in the helicopter world, as many crazy stuff as helicopters do, uh, there's still not a lot of new mistakes in terms of what causes those crashes. It's true. Um, you know, even the most high-profile ones that we see in the news today not new stuff. Well, and speaking of which, uh, you know, there was a very large profile accident last year. We're all very familiar with. And, and Dan, I have to say, first and foremost, thank you for being part of the helicopter podcast today. Your knowledge, you can just tell, man, that you're, you just, you know what you're talking about. And specifically when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, operational risk management, SMS and all that, you know, you and I've been able to talk a little bit uh, offline and kind of scratch the surface, but I'm just feeling so lucky. And in fact, it sounds like you and I are going to be able to kind of continue this conversation, uh, not just today, but in further episodes, we're going to kind of partner up and, you know, go over some different safety topics and, uh, you know, really specifically tailor it towards, you know, different operations. And, you know, you can share your vast experiences and your past anecdotal experiences to really hopefully add a lot of value to our listeners. And segueing into that, uh, as you mentioned with, you know, high profile accidents and things like that, I'm interested to hear kind of your take on the, the Kobe situation and kind of how you've dissected that and where you kind of fall in that. I would be really curious if you're open to talk about it, of course. Yeah. You know, I mean, with the report out now, um, it, it is what it is. I, I can tell you from a personal experience, um, you know, I, I can almost place myself in, in that fellow's shoes. Uh, I had a very different outcome, uh, but and, and 
you know, for, I don't want to leave that hanging, you know, essentially this was a flight, uh, back in, in probably 96, somewhere in there. Um, I was a brandly newly, I was a newly minted aircraft commander in the H 46. Uh, and for those in the civilian sector, what that really means is you graduate flight school, you get a nine months of training in the aircraft, and then you spend about three, two to three years becoming an aircraft commander. So there's lots and lots of training and you're signed off, right? Now you're a big PIC and you can go do all the missions of the aircraft. Brand new aircraft commander flying with another brand new aircraft commander um, leaving the boat. So we were leaving a, a, a large amphibious assault ship. Um, and we had about a two and a half hour flight back to the base and it was uh, in Japan. And we flew in formation. Uh, There's two H-46s with about 25 personnel on board uh, between the two of them. And our job was to leave the ship and get back to our land base uh, far away. And to do that back then, we didn't have GPS, or one of the aircraft did, but it was like this handheld monster, right? Um, so they had to lead, and those were the senior pilots of the detachment. And we went bombing up the uh, west coast of, oh gosh, Honshu, I think it is, or Kyushu, one of the two, the two westernmost islands. I, would, I wouldn't know whether yeah. w- w- if you're right Here's the important part. Honshu and Kyushu... Whichever one sits, I, I feel bad for the geography. I should know this, but um, there's a bridge between them and this channel, this, this sea channel uh, between the two islands. And the bridge sits up like three or 400 feet, if I remember. Oh, um, wow. And yeah, it's a high bridge. And in Japan, they string telephone lines and wire lines everywhere. So you like never fly under a bridge. Okay. Um, but it was like this is our nemesis. You didn't have weather forecasting. And there was always some weather that sat there like this little cloud of horror that was always going to be there. Uh, and it was a beautiful day when we left the boat, beautiful day when we hit the, the, the west coast of the first island and we're trucking up in formation, having a great time. And we get to the channel. And as we come around, it's like a perfect S channel. And as we come around the first bend, we could see the, the clouds of horror sitting there. But you could see the bridge. So we're like, okay, we're, we're going to give it a shot. We'll see if we can get over this thing. And so we're in formation. We kind of backed up a little bit uh, as the, we're on the uh, left side of the lead aircraft, lead aircraft on our right side. And they go poking up, and we're just about to the bridge height. And the lead aircraft says, we can't get over the bridge, and we're breaking left. This is what we heard. And as our minds computed this, after like an hour or so of flying formation, looking at other aircraft, that was our world. And now, all of a sudden, the guy says, I'm not going to get over the bridge, and I'm turning into you, essentially, and that's when we went into the cloud. Ugh. So we have this mental model of just big rotor blades that are about to come across our nose and the goo. And, and of course, we're in the goo. We're both like, ah, I wasn't flying. The, the, you know, so my, my partner in crime uh, is, is now kind of like, oh, crap. And I'm like, climb, just freaking go up. Now, you had to go up straight. That was the other thing is that it's a bridge. So there's two 2,500 foot mountain ranges on each side of you at this particular place. They can't turn. <laughs> you can only go up. Well, if you went up high enough, you're going to find some airspace. So we were thinking airliners. So we got a, like a cap of like 4,000 feet. Now we're climbing at 2,000 feet per minute as fast as we can, right? Total vertigo induction right away. Both of us are now completely screwed up. And the guy flying says, I have vertigo. And he announced, his announcement changed the game. And I was like, okay, I'm getting on my instrument scan immediately. I'm looking at the instruments. I'm trying to get myself back in the game. And then he says, you got to take the controls. And I was like, okay, I have controls. 
And I'm looking at it, I'm leveling the wings, leveling the nose, I'm sending the ball, I set my power, I'm going through my procedures in my head. And then all of a sudden he screams, break left. Now I'm breaking left on instruments, right? So I'm like, okay. So I wrap it over to like 30 degrees angle of bank. I didn't see it, but he apparently saw a building off the nose coming out of the goo. Okay, great. And then he's like, we got to go high again. I was like, we were high. No, we're not. <laughs> Boom. Not high enough. Level the wings. Here we go again. We're climbing up and poof, we break out. Okay, we broke out. Now we're on this layer. We can't go higher. And it's just one little magical spot. And we, there's a sucker hole. And through the sucker hole, I look down and there is all water. So that's the channel. Know it. It's good. Even saw a boat. It's definitely the channel. I'm like, we got to take this. You know, because we're in Japan. They, they don't, they're not expecting us to pop up and go, hi, control, we're inadvertent IMC, we're, what sure. did you say? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. so we go diving down through this thing and we pull out and we level off at uh, 150 feet over the water, just back in our little territory and realize we're going the wrong way. The other crew is still like, <laughs> where are you guys? And we're like, not now, we're talking, we're, you be quiet, we're dealing with a lot of stuff. And they were sure. like, okay, they had already left the channel. They were like back there in happy land at the mouth of this thing. And now we're going the wrong way. So we turn and he says, hey, you're a little tight on the land, so tighten it up. And as soon as I turn, now I'm looking at the bridge of a super freighter. And it's coming on fast. <laughs> so I'm like, ah! You know, we, we do another yank and bank. This is all like self-induced drama. Um, and so finally we get out of the channel. We're still breathing heavy. People in back are like, it's a wild ride. What's going on? Um, and we blew right by the other aircraft. We're like, hey, we know there's a Japanese airbase right around the corner. We're going there. We'll talk on the ground. That's it. Sure. End of story. So we come bombing in the Japanese airbase. They have no idea what they're here doing there, right? And here come these two big American helicopters. And they come out and they're like, what are you doing flying in this weather? And we're like, yeah, no kidding. So yeah, that's why we're here. And you know, so we swapped some patches. We tried to make nice, nice. Everything was wonderful. They were super helpful. They got us on our way, and we ended up flying another three hours, IMC IFR this time, with control back to our base. And uh, and of course that night the officers club, you know, we're we're having some cocktails, and I actually brought one of the patches out that the Japanese pilot gave me as a trade off uh, for being so nice to us and. I laid it on the bar, and, 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 and in Japan, in the officer clubs, you know, you typically have a Japanese person behind there. Uh, we asked Charlie-san, hey, what, is, what does it say there? Well, you know, so he's got this white patch, little red dot, and it's got these kanji characters on the bottom, and it says student pilot. <laughs> so That's perfect. Yeah, so, uh, but the, it goes to show you, I mean, it's just kind of like, that was a dual pilot aircraft, you know, highly trained instrument, very current. And we were hanging on for our freaking dear lives. And, and it was a sure. two-person. So to be single pilot in that world and try and shift to that, um, you know, yeah, people can walk back like the, the Swiss cheese model, like how he got there in the first place in the Kobe crash. Um, but the reality is, is that once you're in it, you know, it's, it's a hairy time, um, even if you do have all the skill sets and instrumentation. Sure. Uh, and another pilot there to help you out. It, it's absolutely horrifying. Um, so it's it's a weird yeah. I think that there's shift. I think there's like an intensity to it too of you know just like this mental aspect of like oh my god I'm in the clouds and I'm not supposed to be here. Like you're not just fighting with like having have have the skill to actually fly the helicopter by instrument, but you're also like fighting your this mentality of like oh crap 
I'm not supposed to be here. Right. And almost maybe like the shock. It's almost like you just jumped in like to a super cold water and it's like, before you can do anything, you just got to like chill, you know? And so I I found, and I got really lucky at my last company, they did a ton of inadvertent IMC training and the helicopter was equipped with SAS and had, you know, two axis autopilot. And even with those tools, I mean, you're, you can still totally be in big trouble, but you know, the, the key things for them was just, you know, level the aircraft, climb with power and airspeed, like get up, get altitude, maintain power, maintain airspeed, maintain level, and then start to go down of like making a radio call to, you know, working the GPS, finding an RNAV, doing whatever you have to do then that's kind of more additional where I think everyone, at least for me, I was like, I'm going to do this now. I got to, oh, I'm declaring an emergency. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And it's like, well, how about you fly the helicopter first? Get to a point where you're at a static position almost, and then you can kind of start moving. Yeah. And I think that's a hard thing to overcome, uh, being a VFR helicopter pilot. Yeah, that's that's a, another good thing to kind of point out is that, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a very different world where, you know, the majority of the training for naval aviators is instruments. The majority of your operations are instruments, um, you know, and whereas like Army and Marine Corps are very you know, ground support and U.S. Air Force's ground support. Um, you know, it's it's our world. I mean, in the Coast Guard in particular, instruments, instruments, instruments. And every aircraft I flew was allowed to be in the clouds. It was intended to be in the clouds. Um, sure. To to an extent, like, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the Coast Guard will go out um, and they'll fly, they'll identify a target on the water and they'll fly an instrument approach down to 50 feet and creep up on it and see what it is. But your, your, your MDA or decision height in a controlled approach, either with a computer or manually, is designed to take you from 300 feet and 70 knots down to 50 feet, 800 feet shy of a target. You're either doing the math or the computer's doing the math. And that's an intentional tool set. So, you know, whereas in the commercial sector, most helicopters are not allowed to be in the clouds. And you're getting instrument no. ratings on those helicopters. Um, so it's understandable that, you know, somebody with an instrument ticket gets in the clouds inadvertently, even with an instrument ticket, if they haven't ever really played in the clouds, you know, and you think about the, the Kobe crash. I mean, yeah, the guy's got lots of ratings, but the last time he was actually in the clouds flying an IFR plan, probably not very much because it's a pain in the butt in LA. You know, it's, it's, it's time, it's money. You know, so yeah, and I think you know, I think they spoke to maybe his currency was you know far, you know, not not very recent, and I think the program wasn't IFR, you know, equipped oh, as is that's, or that's approved. Even, that's even more money, so, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, of course. So it, that was just a bad deal, um, you know, and obviously being a, a helicopter pilot right away when I heard about it, I kind of just automatically jumped to like this invert and IMC situation. And I like what you said in the beginning though, which was like, I, you know, you could have been that guy, you know, you could, you could be that guy sitting in that seat. I think it's important as helicopter pilots. And as if you, if you're listening to the podcast right now, I'm, I'm never going to be sitting here on a high horse saying like that guy was an idiot. Uh, I mean, if it's a really blatant thing, I guess maybe, you know, but like, there's so many things and so many factors that happen in a helicopter uh, that we I think we're all somewhat uh, apt of making that same decision or going down that same rabbit hole. And so, you know, I'm just glad that, 
you know, companies are really starting to push to try to get away from that, whether it's having really conservative minimums or it's having uh, training procedures in place or it's allowing guys like Dan to come to your operation and disrupt it a little bit and make sure that you're actually following procedure, that your pilots are following procedure and establishing a baseline of safety. Uh, because ultimately, without it, I mean, all of us could be making those same mistakes. And so, you know, I just really hope that you know, as an industry, we're moving away from that. Uh, but man, I mean, we've, we've all been in situations that were a little hairy. <laughs> yeah, and, and to, to counter on that, like the flip side of that is you got to remember, sometimes it is a hazard that bites you. Okay, so, you know, it is something that is organic to an operation that you know can get you that is nothing to do with the air crew. And it's nothing to do with the operation. It's just an inherent hazard. And it manifests itself and it gets people killed. And too often, people are too quick to judge what happened. Sure. Um, and again, another personal experience there where I sat on a investigation, uh, a mishap investigation, a fatal one, um, four air crew dead. Um, and it was 2008, so Coast Guard crash. Um, it was a training event. And I can tell you that when we first got to the scene, we all kind of in our brains kind of had it. We knew the cause of the crash. It was uh, the helicopter snagged up on a boat. Um, but we all had like a mental model of, of what really happened. And at the end of that investigation, six months later, with everything that we compiled and all the help from the NTSB and, and all the engineering analysis, um, every one of us was wrong. Um, and collectively, we were able to let the data present itself. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was, it was just that. It was a hazard. You know, it was, a, it was getting snagged up on a boat. There's no way you're going to make a boat not a snag hazard. And this was a Coast Guard boat. Coast Guard boat. I mean, they had lots of training. Oh, Lord. But all the data, the previous data that was associated with doing a particular type of maneuver at night with a particular type of boat, there were a lot of lead-up things that ended up causing this. But the end mitigation was to change the type of hoist that was used by Coast Guard dolphins to the type of hoist that would pan out. Because that would mitigate this particular hazard of snagging up on a boat. That was the fix. That was the takeaway. And I will tell you with all my heart, those four people were like clockwork that night. They did everything right. It was like textbook. They did nothing wrong. And so that's another way you got to think about safety is that those hazards are out there. you got to look at the mitigation pieces so that they don't bite you. Because it may not be the aircraft. It may not be the people. And it's crazy to think that you went into that investigation kind of with potentially your mind made up and then, you know, come toward the end. It's like, oh, no, it's actually this winch system. And uh, it's my understanding from previous conversations with you, like you just said, like that, the that's now the standard winch for that aircraft, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like a, a big change that happened. So, yeah, that's, it's, that's a it lot is of money cool too, to see. Right. But they, they could it's justify. It's a ton of money. It was completely justified because sure. they had the data. Yeah, they had, you know, this loss of life and loss of airframe, but there was so much supportive data pointing towards mitigating that hazard. It was like an easy budget item for them to turn around and go, now let's find the right one. Let's retool it and demonstrate and procedures. And, and they crafted it. They changed a lot of how air crews would react to certain things because of other things that we discovered. Uh, but it was training equipment and procedures that were the outcome of that investigation. And there was never any lay of blame there was no no you know bad stuff happening for the families or any of that jazz it, it just it was as simple as a yeah 
It was just simple as that hazard. Well, Dan, I feel like you're a very safe guy with helicopters, but you're a dangerous guy to talk to because, man, I could just go on forever here. We've actually surpassed our time a little bit, so we have to call it quits for today. But, Dan, I'm so excited. Uh, I hope that you and I can collaborate and really come up with some cool things over the coming months. I'm thinking right now, you know, once a month we can produce an episode together, something that's more uh, on a safety topic, something that maybe is a part of your syllabus on some of the training that you conduct with your um, with your clients. So I'm just really looking forward to building that relationship. And I think you can bring tremendous value to our listeners. So thank you so much. Again, if people want to learn more about you and the squadron, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, it's a uh, website, the squadron Inc, uh, the squadron.com, the hyphen squadron.com. Um, you know, we do a lot of stuff that's mainly word of mouth. It's a, a lot of like boutique consulting, I will. Um, so you know, from that, happy to discuss with anybody. If you're doing something operational leaning, uh, you know, we're not like a safety first kind of organization. We're operations first and safety's layered on it. So, you know, that's, that's kind of our safety stick. guy. Yeah. You don't, you don't yeah. show up like with a big uh, vest on, like that says safety no. drone operator on no. the back or anything. No, definitely not. I had to throw the drone <laughs> part in there. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, man. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being part of the Helicopter Podcast, not just this episode, but further episodes. Yeah. And everyone, thank you for listening. Episode number 10, we did it. Uh, I wish I had like little poppers that could pop it, celebrate it, but I do not. So I'll just say thank you for listening. Thank you for liking. Please share, subscribe, do whatever you do. Uh, we are available on all platforms. So uh, episode 10, the Helicopter Podcast with Dan Duderman in the books. Thanks, brother. Talk to you thanks. soon. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-SELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to 1-855-735-5226. And a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done.